Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted that my guest this week is Britain's best known historian. David Starkey came on to our show last year actually and his interview with us proved to be one of the most popular that we've ever done. And in December, he also gave our New Culture Forum lecture, the Smith Lecture, which was on One Nationism and Israeli. Uh, I'm delighted he's with us again. Uh, hello there, David. Hi. Hello, Peter. <laughs> um, how, how is it affecting you, this lockdown? Are you, has your life changed drastically or not at all? Uh, it has transformed. Uh, my entire existing income has disappeared. Mm. I, in other words, public lecturing, performance, all that kind of thing. I've shifted from a half metropolitan creature into complete, you can see how I'm dressed, <laughs> into a complete country <laughs> mouse, you know. Um, I, I wear the, uh, uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, much binding in the marsh blouson. Uh, uh, I haven't put a tie on in weeks. Um, and I am fairly well uh, socially isolating. The reason is I had a conversation um, with my doctor and I am, I hate associating myself with vulnerability in any form, but I am 75. Yeah. I have mild atrial fibrillation and there is a very sharp correlation between the impact of COVID-19 and heart disease. So he said, be sensible, yes. we'll revisit it. Um, uh, but I must admit, I mean, you look at the circumstances in which I am, we can maybe twiddle it round a bit more. It's a very agreeable prison that I'm in. Um, I have my books, I have my library. Um, I'm a bit like Prospero, uh, driven out of Milan. Um, I have my books, I have my library. Uh, this presumably is my aerial and my spirits. Um, uh, uh, he only had a gar he only had an island. Uh, I've got a very beautiful garden. So. And one's support continues, yes. but it's utterly bizarre. Yes. My life turned on a pin's head. Yes, exactly. How do you feel? Uh, sorry, I hate that. I know you all hate that. How do you feel? Sorry, should I say what do you think about the general way at the moment? This we've just had uh, last week. We had Boris doing his speech, didn't we, uh, on Sunday? What sort of state do you think we're in at the moment with this? How do you think it's being handled? Oh, uh, I think it's impossible to exaggerate how dire state it is. Um, the, we've committed economic suicide. And I think it's really very important to be quite clear. Um, we've, we talk about it as the COVID-19 crisis. It's not it's a specific political crisis, which bizarrely, everybody seems to have got themselves into, starting with the Chinese. In other words, it's an, an extraordinary version of the emperor's new clothes. Because what we need to understand, Peter, is there is enormously long history of epidemics, pandemics, um, uh, incidences of local disease, incidences of disease transferring themselves from one community to another. One of the famous examples is when venereal disease was transferred from Latin America to Europe. 
um, with the Spanish conquerors. It was the revenge of the conquered people. And syphilis at the beginning of the uh, 16th century was the most horrible disease. You know, the King of France, his nose falls off, you know, the, the, the whole of this horror. But what is peculiar about um, COVID-19 is it's not actually a very serious disease. Uh, if you look at the numbers affected in Britain that we have been putting this, you know, immense passion about Boris, you know, practically wearing sackcloth and ashes, you know, each, he's right, of course, each death is terrible uh, for those involved, but it's 40,000 deaths. That out of a population of 60 million mm. is an infinite percentage. If you go back to a real pandemic, if we go back to the Black Death of the middle of the 14th century, uh, you're looking there at a first impact when it hit England of about 20 to 25% of the population with repeated returns. So that by the end of the 14th century, the population of England is half what it was mm, at the beginning. Mm, mm. What is unique, in other words, about this pandemic is, apart from the fact it's rather small, is that the damage that it does is self-inflicted. Mm. Earlier plagues did inflict enormous economic damage. I mean, curiously, the Black Death did not inflict economic damage. What the Black Death did was to deal with a country that was getting badly overpopulated, in which way levels were sinking very sharply and it suddenly transformed the uh, English um, uh, agricultural labourer from a dispensable item into a valuable property which transforms uh, feudalism in fact it leads feudalism was never very strong in England, it destroys it and it, it, it facilitates an extraordinary economic takeoff, a huge transfer of wealth uh, from the few to the many. So it's a very Labour Party, it's a very Labour Party mm. di uh, disease. It, it transfers wealth uh, from, the, from the few to the many uh, and it leads to the development of a market economy. Some other plagues had much more terrible consequences. They were on a similar scale. Uh, the Great Plague, uh, which afflicts the late Roman Empire, the so-called Justinian Plague, um, which sweeps across. They all begin in China, by the way. They all begin in that corner uh, of, of the eastern Eurasian landmass. Mm. The great players um, at the end, uh, towards the end of the reign of Justinian, uh, not only uh, inflicts terrible population loss on the Roman Empire, which is now, by the way, basically in the eastern Mediterranean, yeah. it also uh, deeply afflicts Rome's great enemy, uh, Iran, uh, Persia, um, and it effectively destroys the power of both Iran and of the Roman Empire, and what it leads to, it leads to the rise of Islam. Mm. So you see there a, a play that is vast in scale and has got dreadful consequences. This is a very odd plague. Mm. It's rather small in scale, but it's gigantic in consequences because we have chosen to inflict uh, a form of economic suicide on mm. ourselves. There's no other way that one can describe it. Um, you've written a piece, uh, you write a column for the Critic magazine, don't you? And uh, there's a piece coming out, I think, uh, in the June issue, which is out in a few weeks, um, which I've seen. And, and in that, uh, you, you 
it's very interesting you actually pinpoint a particular weekend when policy sort of changed so that Boris Johnson and the government had been going along one path and then on this weekend there were a few events that happened that made them change direction. Can you tell us what that was, David? Yes, well I think, I think that until uh, the weekend, the key weekend, and this will go down in history, this is the first draft of the history of the overreaction to COVID-19 in Britain. Up to that Friday, the uh, with the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer and the prime minister himself uh, the good sense of the scientists and the uh, and the statisticians on the one hand and particularly uh, boris johnson's libertarianism and generally you know looking on the bright side uh, the pot half full rather than the pot half empty we were going to go along with what sweden has done we were going to go along with um, uh, what is uh, what was um, uh, demonised as as um, uh, as herd immunity, but which would have resulted in things like social distancing, um, a suggestion that people uh, observed extra special hygiene and that sort of thing, but not this gigantic lockdown. But what happened that weekend? And it's it's this Peter is how history is made. We tend to think of history as being gradual. Yeah. Usually history is a crisis. Things turn on a pin's head. And in that weekend, three things happen. And the first is that the deaths, you know, they're running at about 20 or 30. They double. That looks dramatic. The second thing that happens is the nemesis of Britain, France, President Macron of France, threatens to close the frontier if Britain did not adopt the same kind of extreme measures which France had done. And the third, they are, but those two things are public knowledge. Mm. The third thing is private information uh, from a journalist friend of mine uh, who is exceedingly well informed. And on the Sunday at Northwick Park Hospital in northwest London, one of the areas that has been of the capital throughout has been worst afflicted by the virus. There were scenes that were reminiscent of what was happening in Italy and what was happening in Spain. Oh. The hospital looked as though it was going to be overwhelmed. The IC unit was, you know, shutting down. There weren't enough ventilators. There were people piling up in admissions. There was, and they have sort of bodies beginning to uh, uh, collide with incoming patients. And I think at that point, the government simply panics. Mm. And a few days later, you get Neil Ferguson's absurd report uh, that from Imperial College suggesting half a million deaths. Mm. And I think the combination of that localized panic and these gigantic figures suddenly landing on their deaths mm produces a complete change of approach. But there's another factor, Peter, that we've got to put in. There is a necessary local political factor. If we go back you the kind introduction that you gave about my last um, interview with you, um, and indeed, uh, more precisely, I suppose, um, the Smith Lecture, I was talking about the new compact, the new One Nation Toryism, the way that Boris has revived Israeli. Now, part of that compact, in other words, reuniting the south with the north. Part of that compact is that the Tories had to present themselves as absolutely the party of the mm. NHS. Mm. 
this had always been the Achilles heel. It had been the thing that Labour had been used to get at them. If you're going to take over as uh, blue Labour in the North, you've got to be beyond doubt committed to the NHS. Still, the manifesto did that. Now, look suddenly at what's happening. On the evening of the 15th, it looks as though the headlines in two days' time are going to be NHS overwhelmed under Mm. Tories. Mm. Mm. That is the key issue. And if you look at what was then done, we focused all the time. You began talking about lockdown. But that wasn't really the important thing that happened uh, in the in the aftermath of that weekend. Um, it really wasn't. And again, as you can see from Sweden, lockdown doesn't make very much difference. The thing that w- was peculiar, the thing that was odd in Britain, were the measures that were taken. And here, my information does not extend. Future historians will have to determine who took the steps that I'm going to describe now. Because the steps that were decided were to protect the face of the NHS at all costs. Right. The, and the decisions are as follows. The first is you stop all forms of surgery and diagnostic testing completely. Cancer, heart disease, the lot. Mm. The National Health Service becomes the National COVID Service. Right. Secondly, you clear every bed that you can mm. so that you can deal with the expected influx of COVID patients. This is when, of course, patients, usually elderly, the so-called bed blockers, very well have had COVID-19, get sent back to care homes. And so it is this, it's this series of astonishing clinical decisions, which of course are coupled with something else. You also shut down dentistry. Mm, mm, astonishing. Mm, mm, you shut down all private medicine. Mm, you do a deal mm, uh, with the private hospitals. You close them down. Mm, and the result of this, of course, is that Britain was spared that humiliation. We did not have the scenes that were in Italy. We Mm. did not have the scenes that were in Spain. But there is a terrible price to Mm. pay because we've got two other sets of deaths Mm. which are now catching up. Mm. There are the deaths of the people who should have been treated for cancer, who should have been treated for heart Mm. disease, who are also terrified to go to hospital because of COVID-19 and therefore are dying in droves. And then there is the final sting in the tail as the deaths go down in hospitals, they go up in, in care, care homes, homes yeah. because why were we so casual, Peter, about care homes? Mm. Because they're not part of the NHS. Mm. They're not covered by that magic label. So you see, there's a terrible, as I said, there's an awful sting in the tail that the one of the things that's happened happened throughout this crisis is that that joke, it's a Nigel Lawson joke about um, the NHS being the nearest thing in Britain to a national religion, it's actually come true. Yes, we, is... we, you know, we see popular observances, we see yeah. uh, nurses being hailed as angels, we see uh, 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 we've stopped doing anything on Sunday, the Church of England has shut itself down, instead everybody gathers outside and you know, claps for carers, but it's a false religion. We have, uh, in order, to, it, it, it just, the way of the, the NHS has behaved, and this is really going to get everybody very cross, the NHS behaved exactly in the way that the Catholic Church did 
under the threat of child abuse. Right. In other words, it tried to protect the institution, mm. not the patient. Mm. Mm. And this is what's coming back to haunt us. Would you, would you say then that, <clears throat> obviously you mentioned it there, that, you know, all of those things notwithstanding, we should have stayed on the same track as Sweden has? That that's what we should of be course. doing now? Of course, because what is going to happen, Peter, is eventually every country will have roughly the same level of mortality mm. unless they continue to seal themselves off. Mm. It's all very well being smug in New Zealand. But mm. unless New Zealand keeps its frontier closed, I'm sorry, mm. you know, viruses don't respect frontiers. Mm. Um, so it's not only going to be that. Um, I, I, I think there's, 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 an, there's another issue, which is the, the ignoring that the only way that you can have serious structures of healthcare is because you have serious economies repeatedly. We've been told, especially by the soft-headed left, that, oh, we mustn't prioritise the economy uh, over, over health or mm. over deaths. But it isn't. You've got to maintain the balance between the two. Mm. And the Swedish approach perfectly maintains the balance between economic rationality and a degree of respect for human life and all the rest of it. Whereas what we've done is lurch completely. And we also did something which I think is really unforgivable which is that we lurched without a plan. Yeah, yeah. What I am describing now is not a plan to deal with an epidemic. It is a plan to save the face of the NHS. Mm. These things were just scrabbled off the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, again, uh, the future public inquiry, which one hopes will have some serious historians on it, um, will need to ask these questions. Was it Public Health England? Was it the NHS directorate? That came up with this. How far were ministers actually involved? I would suggest they just said, ministers said, for God's sake, do something. Yeah, yeah. And then these things were come up with. And again, it also raises absolutely fundamental questions. How is it that the Hippocratic Oath can be completely overwhelmed by by considerations of saving institutional face? Mm. How can you, how can administrator actually instruct a consultant to suspend treatment. Mm. Thing is that these, are, these are really, really radical questions. And you know, I'm leaving aside Peter everything that uh, my friend Jonathan Sumption raised very early on about the uh, you know, fundamental attack on on liberty, mm. uh, the irrationality of it in, in legal terms, and so on. But but even if you look at it in narrowly health terms, mm. it stands up very badly. You talk there about this the weekend. You talk about the saving the face of the NHS. Um, what, therefore, would you say when people bring up, well, yes, OK, so we, you know, there was this huge panic, um, but it looks like most of the Western world has panicked. I mean, you know, we, it, we, or at least should we say the Anglosphere, as we'd call it. I mean, why would that be the case? I mean, they, they don't, in America, there's not the same imperative necessarily, but or in many other countries you can think of, but there has been this kind of what you might say is an extraordinary overreaction. Well, I, th I mean, again, one the, one of the, the, the things that I've described about the, the suspension of medical treatment uh, uh, and so on, they are peculiar to Britain. Yeah, yeah. Those things are peculiar to yeah. Britain. The general overreaction isn't. Um, uh, uh, 
And again, there are much more general factors. I mean, there are uh, the strange notion that we have now that uh, it's wrong to die, that rather than death being an inevitable part of the human condition, mm. Mm. Uh, it is fundamentally an error. Uh, uh, in other words, that the uh, doctor has replaced the priest with a sort of implicit guarantee of eternal life. Yeah. And this, of course, leads to the preposterous structure of our current medicine, in which, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, uh, as much is spent on the average patient in the last year of their life as in their entire previous medical right. history. And of course, that cost, frankly, to be blunt, is thrown away. You know, mm. the desperate attempt at resuscitating an 85-year-old. I mean, the absurdity of doing that has only got to be stated. And it is, again, you see, I think it, it, much of this is a reaction uh, against uh, two things. It's a reaction, obviously, against Nazism and the treat treatment of the disabled and so on there. And secondly, uh, it's a reaction against something else. Uh, Nazism, of course, is sort of the right, even though they call themselves the National Socialists. But the left, right through the 1920s and 30s, was tainted with a different um, brush, if you like. It was the brush, uh, the brush of eugenics, yeah. how to mm. improve the breed. Mm. And this is very interesting. This really is very, very interesting, Peter. Which was the country where eugenics survived longest? Sweden. Sweden. I think much of the Swedish reaction positioned against that background. When you look at the crisis as it's panned out, uh, it does appear that people are lining up on different sides. There's a kind of left-right dynamic, but there's also a sort of Brexiteer Remainer dynamic. Would you say that's true? I think it's absolutely true. I think it's important to remember that uh, this is true in two already deeply divided countries. That's to say in Britain and in America. In America, you get exactly the same divide between pro-Trump and anti-Trump, Democrat and uh, Republican. It is Republicans who are leading, and libertarians, of course, who are leading the charge for getting out of the lockdown. It is Democrat governors like Cuomo and all the rest of it who have been holding, uh, holding the fort and saying, you know, life is more important. So in one sense, all we're seeing is a crisis latching on to existing political division. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I do think that the right-left positions do lend themselves to different approaches. Clearly, the right tends to prioritize matters economic. Mm. The left tends to be, well, frankly, in favor of everything that's being done now. It's yeah. no accident that the moment the crisis happened, you had Jeremy Corbyn jumping up and dying saying, yeah, 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 I've been proved right. Mm. In other words, what the left wants to do is to turn the whole of human existence into a crisis that demands state management. It believes people should be paid by the state. It yeah. believes that the state is better at doing things than private industry, despite the fact, of course, Peter, that this crisis has demonstrated absolutely directly the opposite. Mm. If you remember, at the beginning of the crisis, we had two sets of shortages. We had the great run on the supermarkets, and then we had all the problems with ICU beds, with ventilators, with testing, with everything else. The supermarkets sorted themselves out within 10 days. Mm. The mm. problems in the NHS, if anything, have got worse. In other words, big business can sort it out. 
big government can't. Yeah. And, and I think that repeatedly the problems that have happened in Britain have been because of the peculiar big government nature of the NHS. Yeah. If you look at why Germany has coped so much yeah. better, if you look at why South Korea has coped so much better, I mean, let's just take the specific instance of testing. Um, uh, the reason that we've done catastrophically badly in Britain is because it's been absolutely centralised. The NHS is the parody of 1940s big government, with Public Health England insisting only it could set standards, only it could actually carry out the test, only it could actually validate um, a positive or negative test. America tried that line uh, for about 10 days, and then, of course, as you said just now, America doesn't have the same obsession uh, with federal institutions that we have with the NHS. Mm -hmm. And the uh, drugs agency was just pushed out of the way and America privatized testing. At which point you move, Peter, this is a staggering figure. Uh, the um, Adam Smith Institute did the work. You move from 100 tests a day to hundreds of thousands being mm -hmm. available. Mm -hmm. An order of magnitude shift which we've not yet managed to do. And Germany never had the problem in the first place because it's not a centralized country. Healthcare is dealt with in two different ways. Mm. It's dealt with within the separate lander, within the separate state governments on the one hand, but also there's a very, very large privately insured uh, uh, health base to the country, which of course is run in very different fashions. And, and the, 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 the great German clinician uh, um, um, uh, um, virologist who has been in charge, if anybody has been in charge of presenting the German case, has specifically picked this out. He said, right. your problem in Britain is you have this big government. We don't. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Socialists can't admit this. And then the final thing is in Britain, of course, the uh, the leave uh, the remain and media have never forgiven Boris. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is, you know, just yet another opportunity. And it has to be said, of course, that uh, an area in which uh, the memorization of, of careful criteria of elaborate statistics of funny names uh, uh, actually comes over rather well in the press conference isn't something that's going to show off Boris Johnson's best best qualities, isn't right, it's a crisis. It's a crisis designed for uh, 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 Keir Starmer on the Guardian. Um, and of course, they have exploited it as brutally and ruthlessly as we would expect. Do you think that this uh, this divide? Uh, do you think this? You mentioned a, a, a political divide latching onto an issue. Do, I mean, do you think this is going to be the pattern for the future generally? That in fact, this divide, this cultural divide, will basically come to light with every issue this country faces. I think it's very likely to, because of course, it's part of an. The divide itself is the reason, so I know this, I'm going to utter a complete Irishism. The divide is why the divide exists. In other words, mm. the reason for the Brexit vote was precisely the dominance of a liberalism yeah. gone mad, yeah, of, a liberal, yeah. of a liberalism in, 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 in full intellectual decay, which is represented by the BBC, The Guardian, uh, and so on. Um, uh, the kind of liberalism that, that values you know, international cooperation and globalism above any kind of rational defense of the nation. And this is also something that is very striking. Uh, and I think the, the response of the government, the response of the Conservative government, has been extraordinarily feeble in one sense. I think the 
one of the problems is that um, the man in charge of fighting the response, much more than the prime minister, um, the secretary of state for, for health, um, uh, um, uh, uh, Hancock, um, is himself an utterly unideological politician. Yeah. He he was George Osborne's bag carrier. And it seems to me to be quite clear that he has been captured by the institutional structures of mm. the NHS. Mm. We should be we should be putting forward, as some Conservative MPs are doing, this is, if we are to make the fuss about it that we are doing, COVID is the ultimate consequence of globalisation. Yeah. It's the thing that demonstrates that the reaction against globalisation was absolutely spot on. And mm -hmm. all the deficiencies that we've seen are incapacity in testing. The fact that though we have some of the world's greatest pharmaceutical companies uh, in terms of research we, and marketing, we can't actually manufacture the damn things. The fact that we can't even manufacture bits of cheap plastic, which is, you know, all PPE is. I mean, these are utterly shocking facts, mm -hmm. and they are a consequence of extremes of globalization on the one hand, and total cheese-pairing approach to um, public provision on the other. You know, you always buy in the cheapest market. Mm -hmm. Whereas what's very striking, if you look, for example, in America, America has um, a kind of margin that says, okay, labor costs are higher in America. So if the federal government is going to buy something, it can pay, say, 10% more if the product is American than if it's imported. But here, you know, we've had this, this it's, it's very interesting how right and left have come together in the worst possible way in Britain. The cheese pairing is an extreme example of Thatcherism. Yeah, yeah. And the a completely level playing field is globalism gone mad mm. uh, and we've reaped you know a terrible reward and again uh, so much of, of what is happening it seems to me uh, the as it were the counter tune the counter themes that we should be playing uh, are very much what uh, Boris Johnson was talking about in the latter part of next year, the need to level up. We obviously need to restore enormous swathes of British industry. Well, that's exactly what the North needs, what yes. the Middle East needs. Um, I mean, uh, but of course, in order to do it properly, we need a desperate um, realignment of education. We need a revival, something we've never done very well, of technical education. Mm. Uh, and of course, the uh, uh, here now, my, my, my being great is loyal to the university sector, of which I suppose I'm still sort of a part. And the fact that the university sector is in crisis should enable a confident government to force reform upon it. Mm -hmm. And it's absurd that we continue to prioritise this whole sort of bottom two thirds of our universities, weakish generalist universities. Whereas in fact, we should be reverting to something much like the old colleges of advanced technology. And uh, you know, it, this is one of the great disasters of Major's government, um, that, that it abolished those in favor of turning everything into a generalist university. Um, and uh, uh, you know, Kenneth Baker is brilliant on this subject. We should, we should, we should be going, you know, we should be consulting him. We, we, should, we should be introducing the measures that he's talked about. When you did the lecture uh, in December about One Nation Toryism and Disraeli, um, that, was just, that was just one lecture, but you've been writing a lot about this in The Critic. And there was a, it appeared to be a kind of golden opportunity at that point uh, for something entirely new. You, you mentioned earlier then today about the 
the so-called Red Wall and the new support there was to the government. This was an enormous opportunity, I think you said, for Boris Johnson. Has that been wiped out? Only if the government lets it be wiped out. You remember there is a f famous phrase that was one of those nasty apparatchiks that lay behind the beauteous calm of the Obama government. Never let a good crisis go to waste. This is a very good crisis. But you can only use a crisis if you seize control of it. And I don't think they have done. I mean, that, that what we should be doing is we should be saying, look, these are the things that have, we sh the government, rather than being so defensive, should be saying, frankly, these are the things that have gone wrong. Yeah. This is what we identify as having gone wrong. And what's gone wrong is all the things that we were unhappy about anyway. Big government. We made a terrible. I, mean, I if I were you know if I were Johnson, I would do a mea culpa speech. I would say you know we got it wrong. Mm. We let we let our. I mean I would sack Hancock, and uh, I, I, he will have to go. Uh, and I would, I would be frank. I would say that what happened was um, we were captured by not the carers, not the nurses, not the doctors. We were captured by this dire self-regarding bureaucratic machine, mm. the big governmental aspect of the NHS, mm. and it's been disastrous. And we would then, you know, she should then be saying, uh, we've also suffered terribly from the fact that we've let our industrial base rot, yeah. that, that we buy too much uh, from abroad. I mean, they were brilliant at R&D. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline and all the rest of it is one of the very greatest mm. uh, of, of the drug companies. The, the new Cambridge campus and the new Oxford campus, they're right at the front of development. But whereas in Germany, um, the German, or indeed in, in, in Switzerland, the German and Swiss drug companies aren't just research, they're not just marketing, they're not just finance, they're supported by an infrastructure. We've let the infrastructure go. Um, and it is, it, is, it is the appalling thing that's happened in Britain in area after area. You look at the destruction of our chemicals industry with the disintegration of ICI. The notion was always, oh, manufacturing is something that really, well, it's sort of best left to rather simple little places with people on very low wages, you know, like Malaysia, like China, whatever. Uh, here, we just have the really very, very sophisticated level stuff and then we have what well we have a service economy to keep the you know to keep the helots uh, from actually yeah, starving yeah. And, and i'm sorry that model has shown itself to be deadly and there's another there's a final point peter a service economy cannot survive in a post-covid world and Why? i mean if you look at the economy of London. The economy of London uh, is an economy which depends on huge numbers of people, uh, as New York, huge numbers of people living very close, hugger-mugger together, mm. uh, socialising an awful lot, going to the theatre an awful lot, going to restaurant an awful lot, all of those things, all of which are the things that will be must before this. Um, so we're going to have to do something. And if the government doesn't seize the initiative, somebody else will. There's only one choice after this. Either we go down a fully managed economy, or we, which is what the left wants, of course, and which is what really Starmer will be just, is just as keen on, it's really important we realize this, is just as keen on um, as, uh, as, as Corbyn was, yeah. or we go for a strategic realignment of capitalism. Mm. 
And also, presumably, there is a great opportunity there for someone who wants to take it to actually rebuild and make us a, a country that actually makes things again. I mean... Absolutely. And again, you know, the, I think probably the first thing I would do would be to scrap HS2 and to say, yeah. right, we're go and we're going to do something that 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 uh, is shattering and radical. We are going to pick up something else that George Osborne talked about. We are going to create series of new research in but research and industrial parks in the yeah. north. Yeah. We're going to universities, important existing clusters of industry, and we're going to throw money at them. Uh, it will have to be done. David, uh, is, just finally there. Otherwise, I mean, you... otherwise, sorry, otherwise, at the moment, we're throwing money at people for doing nothing. We might as well yeah. throw money at people for doing something. Do you, uh, you, you started by saying it's an economic suicide. Um, but then we've arrived at a position where we see possibilities. <clears throat> but what do you think the, is the real chance of someone grabbing that opportunity and building manufacturing? Do you think there is the will there? Probably not. Uh, I think there's an absolutely fundamental problem, too, in terms of personalities. As far as one can see, Boris post-COVID is not the same as Boris pre-COVID. He looks to me to be a semi-broken man. He has had a serious illness. He is manifestly not fully recovered. He is a father with a newborn child and with a soppy, sentimental and greenish wife. Uh, these are lethal combinations for the sort of radicalism, optimism, can-doery that we need. Um, I am not optimistic. Well, uh, the way it looks at the moment, it looks like I would agree with you. Uh, I think uh, it, it is very, very worrying indeed. Um, but David, thank you very, very much uh, for giving us your perspective on it. And um, I do hope that perhaps maybe at the end of the year, when things will have moved on a huge amount more, you will come back and talk about it then, maybe towards the end of the year. I think that whatever happens, the situation is going to be the same, but not the same, if you know what I mean. I so, would love to return, and I would love to be able to sit here and say I was wrong. Mm -hmm. it, nothing would give me greater pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do not like to see my country being damaged. No, no. I do not like to see the hopes we've all had shattered. I do not like to see doors that seem to be opening slammed shut, locked and bolted. Mm. I find it profoundly depressing. Yes, I find, yes. I find the behaviour of those on the left who want to spend the whole of the time saying, oh, Britain is worst, oh, we're the bottom of this league table and whatever. I find that sort of self-hatred fills me with disgust. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, it's it's utterly demoralising. Yeah, it's utterly demoralising. Um, David, thank you very very much. And uh, look, I hope uh, I hope to see you soon. And uh, also, well, I know everyone's saying stay well at the moment, but you look like a picture of you look like a picture of health to me. But anyway, okay. <laughs>
Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Thank I'm you. Enjoying, I'm enjoying my misery. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's all for So What You're Saying Is uh, Now. But uh, do uh, join us next time. I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you. Bye-bye.